Let's pray. God, we have heard your word, we've sung the same story, and now we pray that you would make us attentive once again to you and your spirit within. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was my 30th birthday, and I was on the road with my family, moving them from Southern California to sunny Illinois. We had just had supper in Salina, Utah. And as we were leaving town, I saw the signs. It said, next service is 120 miles. I thought to myself, that can't be. Not in America. But I checked my gas gauge just to be sure. And I had plenty of fuel. So I thought. What I didn't realize is that I-70 from Salina, Utah to Green River was one massive grade, and it sucked the fuel out of my little Mazda in no time. And I could tell it was going on, but my family was asleep, and I ran out of gas six miles west of Green River. I could see the lights of the city, um, but I got out and thought, maybe I can push us downhill <laughs> to Green River. Um, but the thin, cold December air took the breath right out of me, and I got back in the car so winded up in the mountains. I decided to flag down a, a trucker. There weren't very many cars out on the road in December, late at night. Flagged down a trucker, and his first words to me were rebuke. You are a fool. People freeze to death out here. Well, listening to his word, we got my family, young family, in his cab where it was nice and warm, and we found another trucker who had some new cars with just a little bit of fuel in them. We siphoned that out and spilled some in the process, got it in my tank, and I'm thinking, is it going to start? We cranked the engine up, and, and I'm thinking, we got to use this fuel, and so I took off. I get just a few feet down the road, and I realize, in the urgency of the moment, I've just left the most important people in my life in a cab of a trucker I've met 30 minutes ago. What am I thinking? I ran out of gas again, just on the off-ramp to Green River. And uh, a state trooper came with a wooden bumper. Now, he's done this before. And pushed me up to a gas station in Green River, where I got my gas, got my family back, and we'd had enough adventure for one birthday, and I decided to spend the night there. Uh, when we got settled into the hotel room, we realized little Leah's favorite blanket had been left in the cab of the trucker. So we tried to console her, got a substitute, said, we'll just have to get another blanket someday. Next morning, as we're checking out, her blanket was sitting all folded up on the desk, the front desk of the hotel. Um, friends, that's a good Samaritan. That's a good Samaritan. And we have warm feelings if you've been a good Samaritan or experienced a good Samaritan. We love good Samaritans. But if you were a first century listener to the story, you would have not thought of any Samaritan as good. This is an oxymoron. Samaritans are not good. 
So we need to take a little closer look at this story, even as Scott exhorted us. Let's, let's look and make sure we're seeing the ins and outs of this. And I'm going to structure my thoughts around the three questions in this text. We've been looking at the questions God asks of us. And if you're not aware of this, we Christians believe that Jesus is God. And so when he asks a question, we, we pay attention to it just as if it came directly from God himself. And so I'm going to look at these three questions, not just for a window into this text, but also as a way of looking at any text of Scripture. The first question he asks in verse 26 is, what is written in the law? You see, the lawyer had asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was trying to test Jesus, and yet the question he asked is the most important question any of us can ask. How, how do we get this gift of eternal life? So Jesus turns the test back on the original tester, asks him a question. He quotes the love commands from the Old Testament. Jesus gives him an A+, good answer, and tells him, do this and you will live. If you look at the next paragraph, it really follows a very similar structure. The lawyer is trying to justify himself, ask a question. Jesus tells this story, but ends with his own question. He's putting the, the test back on the lawyer. The lawyer gives the right answer, and Jesus says in a very similar way, go and do likewise. So we see this very similar structure in these two paragraphs. You see, the first thing that a Bible student, a Christian, wants to do is take a good look at what's written before jumping to the other steps that we might do with God's Word is just look closely at what is written. God has given us this book so that we might come to know Him, know what He's done, what He's like, how we can get closer to Him, what he expects of us, what he has planned for us. And all of this is, is in this book, but we have to read it. We have to see what's there or we'll miss out on the very first step of, of Bible study and understanding Scripture. What's written there? Do you know what's written here? Do you take the time to read it and get familiar with it and just look at the beauty of it, the structure, the, the sentences, the words, the flow, the feel, the atmosphere, the spirit. Just soaking up God's word is the first step that Jesus is calling us to. He's assuming the lawyer knows what's written there, and he asks the same question of us. Do we know what's written here? And have we looked at it ourselves, or are we counting on somebody else to to tell us what's there. Jesus wants us to dive into what's written, to become familiar with, with God through his word. That's the first question. What is written in the law? But then the second one that follows right after it may sound similar to you, but I, I would suggest there's a little difference going on here. There's what is written in the law, and then Jesus says in verse 26, what do you read there? If you're looking at the New International Version, 
It says, how do you read it? So there's, there's one issue of what's written here. The other is, how do we read it? Now all of a sudden, we're not just talking about our observations of what's there. We're talking about our interpretations. We're not just seeing some words on a page, but we're starting to wrestle with it to understand what's there. What's written is quite different from how do you read it? And this question is real important. As we come to a text like this, we have to ask questions like, what's a lawyer? Because the lawyer that Jesus bumps into is not a 21st century attorney walking home from court. This lawyer is someone who's studied God's law, the books of law, the five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's a student of God's law, so Jesus is pointing him back to those scriptures when he asks him the question about what do you read there? You see, it's, it's quite a different lawyer than we would think of naturally, and we have to ask these questions and seek these answers to really understand what's going on. In the story, we bump into a priest and a Levite, and we can put that together. Usually these are religious leaders, but again, the Old Testament tells us more about what a priest and a Levite is. And if we were listening to Jesus' story, we would assume, okay, he's walked a couple of religious leaders by, the next person is going to be a Jewish layperson, someone from the choir or an usher. This is, this is a real given. We'll just assume this. But when Jesus throws in this idea of Samaritan, they were shocked. What? The hero of the story is a Samaritan? These are half-breed Jews, heretics, outcasts, despised by any good Jew, there are no good Samaritans. What are you talking about? This story would have run right in the face of their racism, right in the face of their understanding of their faith and who really should be our neighbors. They're just people like us, right? Jesus is confronting that, and we might miss it if we don't explore the text a little bit further. See, friends, we, we have to do that with Scripture, not just see what's written, but maybe start to ask questions. Notice not only the key texts of any subject, but the words, and try to find some answers. Sometimes we can answer our questions ourselves just by reading other parts of God's Word. And the more we read, the more we can kind of relate one text to another and come up with some answers on our own. Often we have to do it in discussion with other people or sitting under good Bible teaching or grabbing a good book that might give us some answers to our question. All of this is what we call interpretation. It's going beyond observing what's in the Bible, what's written, and trying to come to how do I understand this? How do I read it and put it all together? And this is where in this step, we often get into trouble, not so much because we get the wrong interpretation, but because we take the wrong attitude. Let me try to illustrate. It's, it's one thing to say, this is what God has written. It's another thing to say, 
this is how I read it. Those are separate. The Bible is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. The Bible is. My understanding of the Bible is not perfect. Do you see the difference? The Bible is the only perfect rule. My understanding of it, it may be good, may have some little bit of perfection from time to time, but it's, it's often not perfect. It's not the perfect rule. There's a difference between what I see written and what I start to understand as I study it. And this is often where we get into debates and, and difficulties in the body of Christ is we somehow confuse those two. What God has written is different from what I read. And the closer it's together, the better my reading, but it often needs to be kept separate. We have to interpret. We always have to ask these questions and answer them to the best of our ability, but we need to do it with humility. That keeps a certain tentative attitude toward God's word is our authority, and I, I believe it means this, um, but I'll not hold on to it as tightly as I do God's word. You see the difference? It's so important. And Jesus is asking not only what is written, but how do you read it? Wrestle with that, but keep humility as you do. Those are the first two questions. The third comes quite a bit later in verse 36. Which of these three people do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was a neighbor to the man who was beat up and left half dead? This question forces us to a third and, I think, final step in good Bible study, not just to observe and to interpret, but finally to apply God's Word, not just to see and understand, but to to be shaped by and to do God's word. Jesus is challenging the lawyer to not just enter little debates and testings, but to live out this text, this story. Live out the word. And living it out and doing it is, is all over this text. Did you see it? In verse 28, Jesus says, do this and you will live. In verse 37, Jesus ends, Go and do likewise. He's stressing the doing of it. Let's not just debate it, discuss it, explore it. Let's, let's do it. Notice that even in the story, Jesus doesn't seem concerned about what was going through the mind or motives of the priest and the Levite. He just says what they didn't do. They just passed by. And yet when he sits on the Samaritan, look at the verbs First of all, he was moved with pity, and then out of that pity, verse 34, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, put him on his animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, paid the innkeeper to take care of him, promised to come back and take care of whatever more was spent. Do you realize all the doing that the Samaritan was modeling for us is at the core of this text? But also, did you notice something in the difference between what the lawyer asked 
and what Jesus asked? The lawyer asked in verse 29, who is my neighbor? As if I have some choice in this matter and I, I can't have everybody be my neighbor. And what does Jesus say in the end? He really doesn't answer that question, but rather says, which of these three was a neighbor? Jesus turns the neighborliness from being some limited object to now all of a sudden being the subject of the whole question. Not just being passive, but active. We're not just talking about who is my neighbor. The question is, am I a neighbor? And all of a sudden, the doing of neighborly deeds becomes central to what Jesus is talking about. Friends, this text is, is challenging us to apply God's word, not just explore it, not just discuss it, but apply it. And here, too, we run into a little problem. I, I've done it myself. I know you've done it. We can do a good job of observing what's in God's word and, and even getting behind it to understand it. But one of the first tendencies I think many of us have is to think of other people who could use this teaching. I know of someone who needs to hear this. Boy, someone else I'm really close to could really benefit from this text. I think I might even send it to them. Isn't it, it it's so like the lawyer to be looking for kind of a loophole and to get out from underneath Jesus' penetrating finger of teaching and to put it on somebody else. That's our tendency. And I think to check it, I've tried to make room, or, or let's call it make space for application. Space is actually, for me, a, an acronym, a, an acrostic, space. Is there a sin to confess, a promise to claim, an attitude to change, a command to obey, an example to follow? Is there a space in this text? A sin to confess, a promise to claim, an attitude to change, a command to obey, or an example to follow? In this text, there's a clear example to follow. Go and do likewise. And so with every text, think about it for yourself, not for somebody else, but for yourself. What, what is there in this text for me? But I bring one caution to that. We don't get right with God by our doing. Did you hear that? We don't get right with God. We don't establish a relationship with God by, by our doing a lot of stuff. This text ends with a strong emphasis on doing. But doing is not the start of the life with God, the Christian faith. The start of the life with God is to receive the gift of eternal life through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's the way the life with God starts, is by receiving the, the free gift, the inheritance of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we act and do and be shaped by the scriptures because we want to say thanks for the wonderful gift we have in Jesus Christ. But here's, here's the clincher for me is they can't be so neatly separated. 
Anyone who truly believes works. Did you catch that? Anyone who truly has faith is going to be living it out. Anyone who truly loves the Lord their God with their whole being is going to love everybody else. Anybody in need, anybody that we've despised and excluded, anybody God brings into our life, we're to love that person. Otherwise, our love with God is, is just a sham. Anybody who knows what the Scripture says and is reading it decently is going to be seeking to be shaped by it and doing it more and more. That's just, they're wrapped up together. Whether it's do this and live, or live in Christ and do this, they're one and the same. Don't try to take them apart. And God has called each one of us to be more and more like the Samaritan. The Samaritan was a neighbor. The Samaritan did neighborly things. Now it's up to us. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, would you once again take your word and shape me, shape us into being not just students of the word, but doers of the word. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.